0: Hello, everybody. Here we go. Scott Burnside back again for Two Man Advantage, the podcast, Pierre Lebrun. Pierre, I'm really looking forward to today. I I always look forward to chatting with you, but we're going to hear from Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly in the second segment. And uh, we're going to talk a bunch of stuff. But I was curious, because your kids are smaller now and next week is Halloween. Have you got costumes picked out? Are you, are, you, are you ready to roll? Is Halloween a big deal in the LeBrun household? Is that, uh, it, where's it, that it, fit it, in?
1: It is a big deal, but uh, as you know, we're doing a two year reno in our house <laughs> and uh, only have access to half our house right now. And in fact, our entire property has been framed out. Uh, the, the, the construction company put, puts this gigantic uh, fence around the house. Uh, while uh, imploding uh, half of our house, and so we're not going to have other kids walk into that disaster. <laughs> so, so I think the last I heard from my nine-year-old daughter Melanie's, I think we'll set up just like a lemonade stand. We'll set up a, a, a Halloween stand outside the fortress, and uh, make sure that we, we that we uh, take care of trick or treaters in the neighborhood. But in the meantime, wow. in the meantime, uh, I'm trying to remember my son who's a meathead, Mark, I think he's going to be a of ninja. Course. Okay. Yeah, a ninja. And I think my two daughters were
0: still debating between a couple of costumes. I'll yeah. Checked. Well, you see, you're nicer than I am because if, if I had hoarding around my entire house uh, so that it looked like a... a, a demolition site, that I, I would take advantage of that not to give out any candy. So you're obviously way nicer yeah. than I am. Did you ever dress up as a hockey player? Because I, when I think of Halloween in my first, and we lived in Northern Ontario, it's funny, this came up in a conversation with Dale Talon, uh, the GM of the Florida Panthers. I spent some time with he and Chris Pronger the last few days. Uh, we were in New York, and uh, he's from Northern Ontario as well, Cochrane uh, area, ruined Noranda. Um, well, well and,
1: hold uh, on, hold on, hold on. Isn't that... To- this just <laughs> shows you what a Southerner you are.
0: He's from <laughs> Rwanda
1: Ruina- Rwanda is from Quebec, buddy.
0: Not okay, well, it was right on the border. Well, it's sorry, on the it border,
1: is, it is on Quebec Ontario border.
0: You're <laughs> okay, correct, yes. yeah, that's right. Well, we lived in Northern Ontario. You could see the lights of Ville Marie, Quebec, and I remember growing up, and that seemed like an exotic thing. But, but some of my first Halloween memories are actually dressing up as a hockey player before I could learn to skate. Um, we had the old wooden stick and the plastic CCM helmet, and that was there are pictures of me. That that was, and I think it was might have been the first Halloween costume for more than one year. Like we didn't have a lot of money, so I think we used the same costume we repeat it uh, over the years did you ever did you ever dress up as a hockey player
1: oh yeah i'd put the old bucket on for sure um star wars characters for sure in the 80s yeah but you know where i grew up in hearst which is actually northern ontario um uh which is near cochrane by the way okay uh, we would usually get our first major snowfall snowstorm mm-hmm. around halloween that's how far north it is that where i grew up i don't know if it's the same today with climate change and everything else. I have I don't get up to hearst much anymore, but it was it was mighty cold. So you had to be quite uh you know I mean my parents had to be smart about finding a costume where I could also wear a full ski suit underneath it. Uh so that I didn't freeze to death while getting candy.
0: That's yeah, true. Yeah, we had the same thing. It, you know, I think some of the first pictures we had like a heavy sweater on, like not a jersey, like a hockey jersey. I don't we didn't have any of those, but yeah, you had to wear a sweater and plus your your costume had to go over the heavy sweater stuff. So that's yeah. very that's very good. Um what else? Okay, before we go. out, what, are you a scary movie guy? Like I can't remember. Are you, are you do you like them? Are you a uh, um
1: well let's see. how many how many films have we watched together buddy over the years you know we've got we've gone to the movie theater
0: together on the road have we not no never i have never <laughs> i have never been to a theater with you that's why i ask i know you like peaky blinders but no i mean, i i have never been to a theater with you i can say that with a relative uh,
1: certainty <laughs> They don't serve red wine
0: there. Um, no, they don't. Although it's some now in uh, the high end, movie theaters, at least yeah. in the states, maybe it's different. But you can, you can, you can get a beer or a glass of wine if you so desire. But uh, yeah. I, I can't even, th- I can't even recall the last time I was in a the theater. But anyway, so do, are you a scary movie guy?
1: No, not really. I, I don't have much time for that. I, uh, I
0: like, I like dramas, and
1: uh, you know, I, I'm a very sensitive soul, as you know.
0: That's it. (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm sure you've seen a star is born, then, so that's good. Good for you. Um, All right. Well, let's move on. And speaking of a star, I don't know whether he's a star or not. But I thought it was interesting your piece that came out actually earlier today. Or is it going to run tomorrow? Maybe I don't know.
1: It's uh, going to run on Friday. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But uh,
0: interesting development uh, with the uh, Golden Knights locking up Nate Schmidt. To a long-term deal and and extending him and, and it really is I think it's interesting on a couple of fronts and and I, like I'm not surprised they, you know Make Schmidt's an important part of the the Golden Knights and you know it's a team that is I think slowly starting to to find its traction after a very difficult start now they're coming off an overtime overtime or shootout loss to Vancouver very surprising. Uh, Vancouver Canucks team, um, but you know one of the reasons I think that they that that they haven't got off to the start that people assume they might is the absence of Nate Schmidt, who's of course serving a twenty-game suspension for running a foul of the league's uh, performance-enhancing drugs um, rule. And uh, but now extending him, even though he hasn't played a single game and won't for quite some time yet, um, I think it shows you how important. He is to them specifically. But I think it also speaks to, you know, what is a very thin defensive market? I, you tell me if you think I'm wrong. But, you know, as you look ahead to free agency next summer, players that might be available, at the trade deadline, all those kinds of things. It's pretty, it's a thin group. And George McPhee likes to take care of business. And he's done it early in locking up Nate Schmidt. Yeah, well, first of all, let's deal with Vegas, Scott. Uh, as usual, you asked me 17 questions. It's uh, really more a bunch him. of statements there were, I don't even know if there was a question in there, but anyway, there were yeah. some statements and you can choose to respond to them or not. Yeah. I actually, I paid attention the whole time though, this time. So that's good. Um,
1: <laughs> you know, but on, on Vegas, first of all, it's a clear trend from the golden Knights. They continue to opt for long term when they can and, and re-signing their guys. If you go back to last year, you know, Jonathan Marchesso signed a long-term deal, um, you know, uh, so did, uh, you know, Colin Miller, Brain McNabb. Um, uh, same, you know, Max Pacioretty signs Max an Patrick extension. Yep. Yeah. If he doesn't sign the extension, Vegas doesn't make the trade. Um, but certainly this year, Shea Theodore, Alex Tuck, and now Nate Schmidt, all long-term deals. And in the case of Theodore, that was a big deal. That was a bone of contention because, you know, Theodore and his camp, for the longest time, fought for a two-year bridge deal because they obviously felt that, you know, they could use the two years to continue to beef up this pedigree and then come back for more in two years, which is, by the way, what I, I think most guys going into their second contract should do. But Vegas fought long and hard and up the ante, up the A V and ended up on a long-term deal both sides could live with. What's happening, and I asked George McPhee about this after the Theodore signing, but it obviously applies to the Tuck signing, which was seven years, and to the uh, Nate Schmidt signing, which was six years, uh, McPhee said at the time after the Theodore signing to me, said, you know, the salary cap right now for them is like a perishable commodity. Like, they're not going to have it forever, the, the cap space that they have. They have more cap space than most teams. And I think they've bet on the fact that let's get all these guys on long-term deals. Yes, it's a gamble because if they don't end up being as good as what they're, um, you know, as what they're portraying them to be long-term, then they'll regret it. But you know, at the end of the day, for sure, Shea Theodore, by the end of his deal at 5.2, that'll be a bargain for a number one defenseman. I think Nate Schmidt would have got more than 5.95 million a year in the open market this summer, for sure. Now, mind you, again, the, the old lack of state income tax in Nevada playing a major card here, right? I mean, sure. Yeah. 5.95 five, five in Las Vegas, you know, I mean, that's basically like 7 million a year in California or New York or any of the Canadian teams. Um, so, so that was a major factor. So certainly, like I said, the big trend for Vegas is they want to use their cap space now and lock in their key guys long term. As for the impact on the market, man, I mean, that's my piece on Friday. But, you know, a year ago, we had this dream of Drew Doughty, Ekman, Larson, you know, Ryan McDonough, Nate Schmidt, Ryan Ellis. All these guys are going to go to free agency in 2019. Well, not so much. They've all signed. <laughs> yeah. They all signed ahead of time. And it leads us basically with Eric Carlson, who we'll see what he does with San Jose, and and if Carlson goes to market, that's a huge deal. But we'll see. And then you know Jay Gartner and Tyler Myers, who are both terrific players in their prime. But after that, it
0: really starts to thin out. Yeah, it, I mean this. Had, I mean that changes how. Well, and I mean maybe this is just. Maybe, this is just the way of the future for. The NHL, right? I mean, look, the, I mean, T- Tavares is a John Tavares as a forward was was an outlier, I think. And, you know, because we, you know, we, how how many times did we talk about Steven Stamkos and he might go to market and what it would mean to the marketplace, et cetera, et cetera? But of course, it didn't happen. He ends up staying in well, Tampa. Well, well, hold I, on. Yeah.
1: Technically, technically, I guess if we look back at history well, and, and we're marking it down, I guess Stamkos did tip his toes.
0: Because he spoke to other teams, right? He did go to market, right? But he 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 went to market briefly and then stayed. I guess my point is when a when someone when someone like Tavares who com- who comes to the marketplace and looks around and and actually then moves on, he becomes someone who who makes a choice and, and moves on, and I. I just think those are those kinds of players, and that kind of dynamic is, will become so rare now. And you're right; maybe Eric Carlson, whatever happens in San Jose, the rest of the the season. And you wrote brilliantly uh, that he can't extend there until—tell me the date. And well, he, it, can it, he act- can't
1: extend for eight years until after the trade deadline,
0: right? Um, exactly. But if
1: you know, obviously, if he wanted to sign for seven or less, he could do it today. you could
0: do it anytime, I, right? Yeah, but, but I he can't the imagine maximum eight years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but so he's, you know, and, you know, I mean, anyone's guess, I suppose, at this point, whether he he goes or stays. So obviously a lot of it will depend on his own feelings on, you know, his comfort level in San Jose and where the team is at. But, you know, I just isn't isn't this just the way of the future that the teams are going to be so focused on locking down players that they believe important to their future, and that you know, the, the, those core players, because it, it, you know the player, and maybe you, you know, you're not spending any more money, right? I mean, it's funny. Dale Talon and I were just sort of chatting. You know, the, you know, the when do you overspend? You overspend on July first, yeah. Um, and if you can do it before, then then why wouldn't you do it? And then and then that doesn't that well. Let me ask you this question: Does that put more pressure on teams? to to focus and spend money and commitment to drafting, developing, making sure the players that you have under your own umbrella become the kind of players that you want to have around for six or eight or ten years.
1: No question. And that's also why uh, teams are so aggressive about trying to lock up RFAs to long-term deals
0: so that they don't even
1: have this UFA predicament, right? I mean, so the the, the industry has changed so much. It used to be that players had to work their way up to finally in their late 20s, early 30s, making money. Now they're making money right out of their entry-level deal in their second contract. So the the game has changed a lot that way. Um, but, you know, I, I, and, I, and I'm with you. I think that Tavares represented, you know, breaking away from the norm. Uh, I mean, hockey players, it's just so fascinating compared to other sports. But, you know... All things being equal, they'd rather stay put for the most part. It's very fa- it's very interesting. I mean, they leave when they're told that they can't, that that teams can't afford them or that they're rebuilding. You know, like different circumstances like that. But normally they stay. But we'll see. There are still some big names that are pending UFAs. I mean, you think of you know Termy e. Panarin, who would be the top offensive option sure. on the market, and he has indicated that he is not only not resigning with Columbus, but well, I shouldn't say he's indicated this. He hasn't said this publicly, but we believe this to be the case, that he's told the Jackets, he's not signing with them, but I don't think he's signing with anyone before the end of the year. I think that even if he's traded, I think he wants to hit the open market. Um, you know, his teammate Sergei Vibrovsky would be certainly a rare commodity for a Vesna trophy-type um, guy to be on the market under the age of 30, although he's 29. But still, that's pretty rare if he ends up on the market. Mark Stone is 26 years old. I mean, a first-line, legit offensive threat. And, you know, Ottawa's going to do everything they can between now and July 1st to sign him, but he could be on the market. Um, You know, we know Eric Carlson's number one, but Matt Duchesne, 27, he has to make up his mind. Uh, Wayne Simmons, whom I wrote about this week, the Flyers, have to figure out what they're going to do there. So there are guys, but to your point, it'll be fascinating to see how many actually end up
2: there July 1st.
0: Right. Yeah. Because the list now, and it's been, you know, Craig you uh, had put out the list right. uh, last week. Uh, I think it was uh, the top 25 and it's interesting. You're right. It, and it, it, and it's, and it is educational uh, and it illustrates your point. If we're having this chat, you know, come trade deadline time, uh, how many of those guys are still, still available? And that would, that will be interesting. I'm curious. It, the other thing that's come up when you talk about these, you know, the contracts that young players you know, they 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 get the, the longer term, the bigger dollar earlier. And, I, I, and I'm sure you hear this, too, from from GMs and coaches that sometimes, you know, if, if there is this feeling that young players have been paid so early in their careers that that it may affect their their development. That they get, they you know, back in the day, you you worked, you worked, you worked, and when you finally got to free agency, even though you might have passed your peak as a performing player, whether you're a goaltender, defenseman, or forward, that in some ways you were getting paid for what you had done, not necessarily what you could do over the next four or five years, and but it was almost like a reward, right? When you got to free agency, you were rewarded for all that work, and I have heard a number, you know, I've heard lots of people talk about this, like you know what, what's the old the old saying? It's 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 hard. It's hard to hard to eat when you're full, or you know, like the the notion that you you've been rewarded with this big contract and and this money at a young age. Does it blunt your incentive to continue to develop and to become, you know, or maximize your potential? All those kinds of things. And uh, you know, well, hockey. Hockey players are, in general, competitive group. Like who who wouldn't want to get better? But I wonder if you hear the same kind of thing that this is sort of the byproduct of having these deals where younger players are locked down early for longer term and for for big dollars based on their potential to produce as opposed to what they've done. And it's that's the narrow line that a GM has to walk, right? Like, what do you mm-hmm. do, like? Do you do you find the same thing? Have you heard the same kind of geez? Now there's a kid who got all this money in this term and you know he he's his evolution has flatlined or that he has he isn't progressing the way that they'd imagine when they gave him the deal.
1: Uh it's for sure it's a concern.
0: First of all they have no choice. I
1: mean that's just the way like I said the system is set up now where you're having to make early early decisions on young core guys before you've seen more of them that you would have liked to before having to do that but the reason that teams are having to do this is because they they, they, they want to, they're trying to fight the third contract, right? So if you can get a player, like, you know, let's again, let's take Jay Theodore as an example. For sure. Vegas gave him a seven-year extension, and he basically just has one year plus under his belt as a full-time NHLer. You know, like half a yeah. year in Anaheim, and a full year in Vegas, and now they've made a call on him on seven years. I think they made the right call, but yeah. the reality is, in the previous CBA, I think that that's a player that probably takes a two- or three-year deal and then they can get to him again. But the way it's set up now, teams are so scared, I think, of what it's going to cost them if they went too short on the second contract that they're trying to make, they're ba- basically gambling and trying to, to, to predict and project what these guys are before they truly know. And, and so, one, that's, that's added a lot more risk into it with young players than it used to have. And, and you're right. Obviously, the human factor, which is once you've given a 23-year-old player an eight-year deal, how is he going to react? And players are different. Sidney Crosby could have a 74-year contract, <laughs> and you would not know, right? You just wouldn't know. I mean, I mean, I mean that's uh, the, the self-drive, the greatest self-drive in the game, just the way that he motivates himself. He, it doesn't matter what his contract is. And, and, and then you have guys that, whose play has tailed off. Uh, I think, in terms of their hunger uh, after getting that type of deal, so you have to make sure—no question
0: about it. Yeah, and, and, you know, I was—I so was in uh, Dallas uh, last week and was doing a, a number of different things, and uh, including one of the things. I haven't written this yet, so um, I'm going to uh, just in case Sarah, our boss, is listening. I am going to do this. But so <laughs> I had dinner. I had dinner with John Klingberg as part of this thing. i sort of uh, where I spent some time, either having a player. F- Cook dinner, or we go and have lunch or dinner or whatever. So John Klingberg and I were out. It was the first time we've done it. And um, but we and he he is such a he's very self aware, very smart. Um, and he's he was one of those players that early on signed a deal. I'm just looking at it now. I think it extends through 21 22. And um, uh, I believe the cap hit is 4.25 million, which cheap, is cheap. Yeah, oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it, he and but we were having this discussion, um, and and I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But when he signed this deal, I think it was like a total of ninety NHL games that he played, or something right. like that. It was you know, and, and he's and we were just talking about this very dynamic, like that to have that security for him. Was really important, right? He, because it was not a straight line for John Klingberg. Worked really hard. Um, went back to Sweden to play a year. Even when the Stars wanted to come and play in Texas in the American Hockey League, it's it, he is, he's such a fascinating guy because he, you know, he I think is going to be in the Norris Trophy discussion. He certainly offensively is going to be one of the top offensive producers uh, among defensemen in the NHL, and and maybe for the foreseeable future. For sure. Um, and, and it, we, we were talking about, and you did a great story earlier, Ryan Ellis, who had similar kind of track. There are different kinds of players, but you know, Ryan signed a, a deal earlier in his career that, you know, by the, when it expired at the end of last year, you know, it was Actually, well below. Still,
1: it still has. Oh, it's expired. still going. He's right. He's, he's playing out the final year, but two and a half million dollars. Right. Well, Ellis, and
0: you, uh, Right. And you wrote uh, eloquently about the the extension in the process with the Nashville Predators. But it is interesting, you know, that was to have the security for John Klingberg was really important to him. And it's clearly he is a player who aspires to lots, right? Like he wants to be a leader. He wants to be better. And, um, but it isn't, you know, all, it's people forget I think a lot of the dynamics, especially with young players, and you want security. You want to know what's going to happen to you and your family, and all those kinds of things. And but you also want to be paid where the market is. And um, similarly, like I'm again, I think it takes a strong person. Like you would never have known from the way Ryan Ellis played that he was making a fraction of what his value was at the end of that contract. Right, guy plays. Mm-hmm. At, at, at an exceptionally high level, but I think that's those are the you know those are the things we sometimes forget when we think about the game is that it, there's a lot of per, you know decisions that go into it from the player side too. You're rolling, you know, you're betting on yourself or whatever you're doing. Panarin's Panarin's an interesting example, as you mentioned. You know, he's you know he's going to see he's what he's at a point in his game where he. he if he follows through on this plan, we believe he's following that he will go to market. Um, you know, and we'll, and we'll see sometimes then we'll see whether it works out or not. But I, I just think it is interesting when you, when you you start talking about the the factors that go into whether you sign a deal or not. And, 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 and the, the situation is very fluid. So. Mm-hmm. No, it's a, and in
1: John Klingberg's case, going back to the story that you're going to write here, but, you know, Dallas clearly believed in what they saw in a very short period of time, that they wanted to get ahead of this, that that they thought Klingberg in a very short time would become among the league leaders, among offensive defensemen and, and, and wanted to secure his services long-term before that was self-evident. And I know people always look back and say, well, geez, like, why would he sign that? But, you know, when, when people throw money at you, even if it's less than we should be making today, you throw money at a guy who's barely played a year. There, there's a lot of security that comes with that. And and it's hard to resist, I think, if you're a player, you know. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, Mark Scheifele making six point one two five million. Like that's just theft right now for from Winnipeg yep. and Nathan McKinnon at six point three million when he should be making ten. Um, but he signed it after a couple of you know, a, a tough sophomore year and a tough third year, and it's like, geez, what's going on? Well, since then he's never looked back. Um, you know, that's the gamble each side takes. And, and I think more and more teams are willing to take that gamble because I think, you know, if, if, if you can pat more than 500 on these, it'll really help your cap management.
0: Yeah, no, there's no question. Yeah, Tavares is a great example. We, a very team friendly contract to, to to finish out his term with the New York Islanders and was well, making almost twice, right? If, uh, I'd have to go back and look, but he, I believe he's making around twice the amount of what he was making on his last year with the New York Islanders. And I, I'm sure there isn't anybody in Toronto, you know, having watched you know, a absolutely fantastic hockey game this week between Winnipeg and Toronto. Uh, I'm sure no one is batting an eye, <laughs> but, you know, that's... He, he he waited, and he had to bide his time before he got that kind of payday, and that's that's right. how it turned out for him. And,
1: but you know, but you know, you don't always nail it. Like I think the Leafs right now are still wondering. Uh, you know, they had barely had Zaitsev for a year after bringing him over from Russia as a UFA, and they and they put a seven-year extension in front of him, if you remember. Yeah. And last year, in the second year, he really struggled. Um, you know, it's four and a half million a year over seven years. It's not a huge number, but it's still, you know, it's still seven years, and thirty one and thirty one point five million offered to a guy in May twenty seventeen that they had had for eight months, yeah. and and you know I, I got to say there are nights where it looks like he'll live up to four and a half, and other nights where he doesn't. So uh, there's certainly risk.
0: Yeah. Well, and you're right. I mean, it really it is about, you know, it's like a batting average, right? I mean, if you can, if you can bat 500 on those, then you're right. You, you should be okay. You you can't, you can't swing and miss though. Right. You can't, you can't, you can't go all and four, right. You can't, no. have, you can't miss those. So, uh, so I want to, you know, we're going to get towards the end of the first segment here of two man advantage. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, deputy commissioner Bill Daly in the second half Um what else is on your mind? I I, I mentioned the Vancouver Canucks in passing, uh, continuing in spite of crippling injuries. I, I they might be for me the you know, we're not quite at the end of the first month, but we're yeah, edging towards the end of the first month of the regular season. That might be the most surprising team to me because I, I just really thought the Travis Green's lineup was just going to be it was just going to be really hard, <laughs> and yet they are. It's I, I just I, I get so much enjoyment out of watching that team you know, on a nightly basis do things that they that on paper they don't look like they should be able to and i wonder is there a team or is there a player you're looking at and you go yeah you know what that's that's cool that's a great story whether it lasts a month or six weeks or or maybe it it carries into the second half of the season but is there something that i'm just looking at this uh, this while i was abiding time there there's six and four they're in first place in the Pacific Division right now, the Vancouver Canucks, as we as we tape this. That's pretty darn good. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the huge surprises,
1: for sure. I think most people had them pegged for, uh, you know, being in the bottom five of the overall NHL standings. I mean, listen, they're a young team, they're rebuilding. It's the Posadines era. And not to mention, you know, they beat Vegas last night. Uh, they've been doing this without Elias Pedersen, who, after a, yep. a remarkable start, of course, had the concussion, and he's on the mend now, but you know to do that even without the Calder trophy uh front runner is is, is unbelievable and regardless of where things end up and I do think the level off Scotty to answer your question sure. I wasn't ignoring you
0: no but, it wasn't even really a question i don't yeah, know but, anyway. <laughs> but
1: but 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 you know what you're trying to do if you're Vancouver or Ottawa or Montreal all the teams that people have picked to miss the playoffs is that regardless of how the season ends whether you're in or out that you've established that things have changed, that, that what was acceptable last year is not acceptable. You know, throw Buffalo in there, because I've, no, I've seen a noticeable change in their body language and the way they approach things so far this year than the past few years. And I think you're seeing that with Travis Green and the Canucks, that, that there's a real turning of a page there. They're, they're going to miss the playoffs, I think. But, but at the end of it, if there's still the same pace to their game and the youth and exuberance and the way they do things now, then I think Canucks fans can live with that because they know the best is yet to come. You know, I think the Senators have overachieved. They're so, so young, especially on the back end. I think there'll be a leveling off there. But again, you know, it's the post-Carlson era, and they're super young and might get even younger. Um, Again, if if, if it's the sense that at least, you know, they're doing this with enthusiasm and, and there's a plan, then I think Senators fans, believe it or not, given how bleak things were all summer, actually have something to hang on there to. Um, You know, I think the Habs, it's a little different, Scott. It's not as shocking to me that the Canadians are where they are. Um, You know, again, they won the division two years ago with the Atlantic Division. So, I mean, Carey Price is still there. Shea Weber's coming back in December. Um, But, you know, they looked a lot different than than last year's team. Way more pace, up-tempo, spending way less time in their zone. Uh, They're getting offense from their top three lines which is something for that team because they really yep. could not score last year. Jonathan Druin looks like a new man this year. He really looks dynamic. This is the guy that they traded for and didn't see much of last year when he was trying to play center. Now he's back on the wing, and, and I think it's been a good, uh, you know, a good shift for him. So some, some good surprises, but of all those teams that you're talking about, I think the halves have, have the chance to have the most sustainability in terms of hanging
0: into a wild card race. Uh, as, as we speak just one regulation loss that's pretty impressive and that's the you know that's the key for for well it's key for all teams but certainly the key for teams that are trying to maybe reverse the 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 flow to go against the uh, against the trend and that is to put points in your pocket right i mean you could, you know whether it's yeah. you know you and, and the Habs have done that five one and two in their first eight games so good for them um What else? Anything else? Because we're going to close this segment, but I have one. I I came across this thing, but I want to ask you. Just, but I don't. I don't want to cut you off. There's something you want to touch on before we before we move on.
1: Well, let let me ask you this. Um, You know, with the Leafs beating the Jets last night, now they're they're going to play again Saturday night. Yep. But what I mean, if you're going to handicap the top five right now, have you changed your mind from from before the season started, or it's still the, the same five teams? In the league? Oh, yeah. Like the five best bets that was the top in your mind. Um,
0: I think, you know, I, I will tell you the team. And it was funny. Uh, I was watching, of course, being Canada, I was uh, watching NBC Sports network and not the sports net feed on the two on the double header last night, and I watched most of both games. So first of it was the uh, Winnipeg Toronto game, which was terrific and and really, you know, to me it showed the maturity of the Leafs because the, the Jets really brought it in the third period, made it three two, had a power play. It was I, I thought, oh my goodness, the Jets are going to do what they did to the Blues earlier in the week, which was to storm back and and erase the three goal deficit. But the Leafs got a a big goal from John and uh, and we're on to, to victory. But the second game, which might have even been better, was Tampa, Colorado, and uh, you know everyone. You know we all thought Tampa was going to there. There, I would. If, if we went back and looked, I, my guess is that they would be the, the favorite among favorites to win a Stanley Cup and certainly to come out of the East. But um, the Colorado, for me, is a team that I, I don't know whether they can sustain it. I'm not sure of their depth. They rely so heavily on that top line with uh, Nathan McKinnon and uh, Rantanen and uh, Gabriel Daniskop, who, who sc- actually scored, but then they overturned it on an offside challenge, uh, which was brilliant by the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. But um, it, the the Avs are interesting to me because they play such a lightning-fast game, and you you hope they stick around. So I'm not saying that you win it, but they're a team that I now am much more cognizant of. And actually, Pierre Maguire suggests this out loud, and I was like, really, it's a little bit early. But he said, this could be a Stanley Cup final preview. Now, I think that's, that's probably a bit much, given how, how deep the West is. But I think Colorado is – they're – they're not going anywhere. Like, I think they're a playoff team, and I think it's going to be fun to see, you know, if they can take another step, and could they challenge a team like Nashville? Now, now, or... now, now
1: be careful. Lars Eller called the Leafs a mere playoff team and got in trouble. <laughs> so so be, yeah. I need you to be careful that you only called Colorado a playoff team. No, I, I listen, I, I, I'm with you, and I think what's interesting about it is that uh, I think the Avs needed this kind of start for themselves, yes. never mind what people like us and, people in the outside world think that's that's immaterial but for them in their dressing room I think having this kind of opening month sort of fortifies the confidence that they brought over from last year that, that, that last year wasn't an overreach yeah. that the journey that this incredible turnaround that they had last year you know is not going to just vaporize that, that in fact they are on their way and so Listen, I I do think there'll be some tough times ahead. I'm with you. I don't know where they get goals when the top dogs don't score. It's kind of like Dallas that way. But, uh, you know, I love what I see from their blue line. They've got a terrific one-two punch and goal. Jared Bednar is an excellent forward-thinking coach. Um, I I think the Avs are a playoff team. And and what makes it interesting to me is that, you know, the Central Division, which is the best in (laughs) hockey, we always talk about, well, it's Winnipeg and Nashville, and then there's a lot of good teams after that. Well, I don't know. I mean, is Colorado going to stay in that first place race with the Jets and the Predators? It could be awfully interesting.
0: Well, as you know, as a Western guy, uh, now sort of right, former, uh, formerly with Dallas, so I, I feel like a Western guy. Uh, do you, uh, Do you think the Central is still better? Is right now is the Central better than than the Atlantic? And and I asked that because you've got right. Toronto playing. You know they're seven and three, undefeated on the road, five and zero on the road. Pretty unbelievable. Tampa is Tampa. They're what we thought they were going to be. We've already talked um, about Montreal, the surprise there. Boston is a good, solid team. Um, Florida now probably one of the most disappointing starts in the in the Atlantic Division. But but they, I think they are going to get it. They you know they miss Roberto Luongo. Um, It's taken them a while. But uh, you know when I look at those, especially you know, the top, you know, those, those are high end teams, right? When you're talking Toronto, Tampa, throw Montreal and, uh, and Boston in that group, uh, like that's, it, you know, doesn't leave a lot of room. If you're, if you're a metropolitan division team thinking, well, if we get five teams going to the playoffs, maybe we can sneak into the second card spot. Well, you know, there's not going to be that much room. And I, I, so I'll ask it then. Do you think that the central is that much further ahead the, of the Atlantic right now?
1: I I don't know about that much further ahead, but I do think the Central is still the best division. I think if you put the the seven Central division teams in the in a wrestling cage match with the eight (laughs) Atlantic division teams, I still I I just saw I'm sorry I just saw the uh, the documentary on Andre the Giant and I thought it was awesome. So okay, I I, I somehow got into wrestling there, but (laughs) but but I but but I, I I think the difference is that you know in the Atlantic, Boston, Tampa Bay, and Toronto are legitimate Stanley Cup elite threats. Uh, but I think it's top-heavy. I mean, the halves are, are surprising. Florida should be better. You know, Ottawa's surprising. Buffalo's taking a step this year. But at the end of the day, there's only three teams in the Atlantic that truly have a shot to go deep in the playoffs, in my mind. Whereas I think in, in the Central, I mean, heck, St. Louis is sitting last in the Central as we tape this. Are they not a team that, if everything goes well, could be a pretty good playoff team? I do. I think so. Yeah, uh, well, I like- the, the, the Stars, I mean, the Wild are the team that I thought would really take a step backwards this year, but they're hanging in. Chicago's had a nice bounce back, and, of course, we talked about the big three of Nashville, Winnipeg, Colorado. So I think no division in hockey has the
0: totality and depth talent-wise than the Central Division. Very good. Well said. All right, why don't we do this? Let's take a break. We'll come back in the second segment. We're going to talk. I'm going to ask you the question I was going to ask you, but after we talk to Bill Daly. so don't, I know you're excited now, you're wondering what I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to tell you after we get done our conversation with Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly, which will come up shortly after we return with the second segment of Two Man Advantage the podcast. As promised, back with the second segment, Two Man Advantage the podcast, and again, as promised, Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly joining us. Bill, I, just before we start, normally... When uh, Pierre tells me that he w- wants you to come and join us for one of these things, I assume it's to talk about the Miami Dolphins and the Dallas Cowboys and which team is worse, and you guys can share your misery. But we're actually <laughs> going to talk hockey here. But, it, but it, just in case you want to get anything off your chest about either the Dolphins or the Cowboys to start, the, the floor is yours.
2: No, I, I, let's uh, stay away from that topic. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I think Pierre probably me. shares my view.
1: Yes, yes, me too, especially after my team just panicked and traded away a
0: first round pick. So yeah, let's let's stick to hockey. All right. Well, let's let's stick to actually the news of the day. And literally seconds before you joined us on two man advantage, uh, the league released its decision on Tom Wilson's appeal of his 20 game suspension. And and the commissioners upheld uh, that 20 game suspension for his preseason hit. And uh, what, what kind of message do you I mean, is this a message, Bill, that you think is is particular to Tom Wilson, who's struggled to find a, a way to stay with inside the lines, or is there a broader message you think that, that uh, upholding the 20 game suspension sends or what's your, what, what's your take on this?
2: Well, I, I, I would hope on some levels it's both. Um, obviously um, Tom was in a situation that, you know, we haven't found ourselves in a lot over you know my time at the national hockey league where, Uh, He had uh, a number of, you know, incidents uh, that were worthy of supplemental discipline. And uh, the Department of Player Safety, to their credit, uh, has spent a lot of time with Tom, a lot of time that was not even publicized, uh, really going over, um, you know, the way he plays the game, uh, things he can do to, uh, you know, put himself in a better position to avoid discipline, uh, including as recently as August uh, of this year, and for Tom to have uh, kind of um, committed another rule violation, a uh, serious rule violation with uh, a Rule 48 hit to the head, illegal check to the head, as, as soon after uh, kind of his last uh, skull session with uh, the Department of Player Safety was concerning on a number of levels. So, you know, I, I think in situations where a player uh, repeatedly violates the rule, and this is right out of the collective bargaining agreement, you know, the, the kind of the multiplier effect on on what his level of suspension should be and what's fair uh, certainly increases. And uh, that was uh, certainly the case in, in Tom's uh, situation.
1: And now, Bill, I guess uh, this is so fresh that you haven't heard from uh, the NHLPA yet, but it's certainly within Wilson's CBA rights now to to move this along through uh, the PA to a neutral arbitrator. Um, and, and you just had this process, although for a case that was obviously completely different in terms of uh, Austin Watson and the arbitrator in that case did reduce the league's um, original suspension, which I know uh, disappointed the league uh, based on the statement you guys put out. But it, maybe if you can walk us through again what the next step might be here and, and how long you think you'll, it'll be before you hear back from 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 the PA on that.
2: Yeah, in, in fairness, I, I did reach out uh, as I typically try to do in advance of us issuing the decision to give the Players Association a heads up that it was coming. Uh, likewise, the commissioner reached out and spoke, I know, to Brian McClellan and to Tom Wilson directly uh, to inform them directly of his opinion. Um, so, you know, we, we, we certainly um, want to be upfront about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I uh, you know I asked the players' association. You know, the commissioner's decision is is somewhat lengthy. It's 31 pages. Uh, the players' association and Tom had raised a number of arguments in in the appeal hearing, uh, and I think the commissioner's decision tries to address each and every one of those arguments. So, um, you know, the way I left it with the players' association is after they've had a chance to review that opinion, and we should get back on the phone, and and certainly we can talk at that point about which way they're leaning with respect to a potential appeal to uh, an impartial arbitrator. Um, You know, I won't presuppose the conclusion there, but you're quite right, Pierre, they they do have that right, um, and I would expect in the next 48 hours, uh, at a minimum, we'll know which direction this is going.
0: Great. Bill, I know uh, Pierre has some some questions, but before he gets to them, I wanted to slide this one in. It made me think of it because he and I actually went head-to-head in our Football Fantasy League uh, last weekend, and normally we have a side <laughs> bet, but he, he refused to bet last week with me, and then course ended up beating Craig Custance and I so which is neither here nor there but it made me think of some of the changes that uh, across the, the the sports betting landscape in recent months and certainly going back to uh, the expansion to Las Vegas and uh, I wonder if you've noticed since um, you know, sports betting has become legalized in in uh, in different states now it, it, are, do you see an impact on on the NHL, in terms of uh, in whether it's interest, uh, do you track the the way the betting patterns are going vis-a-vis hockey? Uh, is there any way to sort of, you know, sort of, I, I guess, um, connect the dots? Uh, whether there is, you know, it's a good thing for the NHL if, if this is if the betting world is opened up as it as it is being uh, gradually. Um, more accessible to more people. Do you what's your what's your view on that?
2: Well, I think there. You know, t- to your point, I think the landscape clearly is changed, and it's changed fairly dramatically. Uh, having said that, I don't think the world has changed um, uh, to this point uh, all that dramatically. I think that's going to be an evolving process. Um, you know, uh, currently there's really only two jurisdictions. Uh, that our teams play in where sports betting is technically legal, uh, which is uh, New Jersey, um, and obviously the Devils just announced a partnership either today or yesterday with William Hill, uh, which is a, you know, a world-renowned sports book, um, and uh, in Las Vegas, where uh, sports betting has been legal for quite some time now. So um, it, it really has not yet impacted uh, a, a large number of our clubs, I do expect that landscape, you know, obviously with the Supreme Court's decision, which was issued in April, um, each, each state is authorized to kind of make its own decision now and uh, certainly can authorize sports betting um, uh, in whatever uh, kind of format they want to do it. Um, and that uh, I fully expect a, a lot of states um, will go in that direction and that may change our landscape more dramatically. Um, so it's it's just a different reality we're dealing with. Certainly, there are opportunities, uh, financial opportunities associated with the new reality. Um, certainly, there are uh, you, know, you know people have always suggested that um, you know sports betting could be a way to enhance interest uh, in the sport. Um, I think it's too early for us to make any conclusions in that regard, but uh, you know, obviously we'll be anxious to monitor that and see if that uh, plays out. Um, so while this may not have been the, the, the world we necessarily advocated for, uh, it is a world uh, that we live in uh, currently. And to the extent there are uh, possibilities to take advantage of it for, from, a, from a league standpoint and a club standpoint, we'll certainly pursue those
1: bill if i can shift gears to uh potential expansion to seattle uh, when we last approached this at the board of governors meeting the quick one day meeting uh, in early october uh in new york um and the commissioner announced essentially the go-ahead to to proceed you know to go to the next step in this and uh, i'm just wondering if there's anything new and and what your expectation is for the big board of governors meeting in early december as far as, as seattle
2: uh, well, no, I don't think there's anything new to report uh, from the November or the, I'm sorry, the, the uh, early October uh, Board of Governors meeting. Um, you know, we're, we're progressing along the lines that we suggested we would. Um, we are working on a report to the full Board of Governors. Uh, which we will vet with the Executive Committee. Ultimately, it will be the Executive Committee's report to the full Board of Governors um, mm-hmm. that would recommend uh, approval of the expansion application. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, meetings, uh, our December meetings, I think the 3rd and 4th of December mm-hmm. uh, in Island, Georgia. Uh, I would expect that at least uh, unless anything changes between now and then, uh, the Seattle expansion application will be a item on the agenda. Um, we will uh, give the board a full presentation uh, really outlining the report that will be, have been included in their materials in advance. Um, and uh, we'll take a motion and uh, uh, see if uh, the application will be approved by the board. So uh, we may have certainty in that regard, as, as much certainty as you can have at this point, um, by the end of the meetings on, on the 3rd and 4th of December.
1: And and as a quick follow that, Bill, would realignment, uh, decision on realignment, is that the proper time for that at the same time? Or, or do you think, you know, you can wait for another board meeting to tackle that?
2: Well, I would say it's a good question, Pierre. And I, I'm not sure I can give you a definitive answer at this point. Uh, I do expect that we will uh, deal with realignment in our in the executive committee's report to the full board. Um, so I think the the vote uh, that's going to occur on the 3rd and 4th will include uh, realignment as an element of it. Um, and uh, certainly if that's the case, I would expect that uh, that issue will be uh, publicly uh, made available, you know, uh,
0: as a result of the vote. Bill, if I can just ask on the realignment, because it, it creates some... Uh, you know obviously some interesting dynamics and how you go about it do you do you anticipate what teams would lobby to to go to a a certain division I mean there's been some discussion could you at some point envision an all-canadian division or a a division in which all of the canadian teams played together Uh, what uh, how and I know that there has been some suggestion I think uh, commissioner Bettman was you know sort of suggested that the, the realignment wouldn't be a dramatic overhaul, but is, is this an opportunity to sort of look at all possibilities with uh, the potential of a 30-second team coming into the league?
2: Uh, well, I think we're, we're fairly far down that path um, in terms of, of what we're thinking uh, on alignment. Uh, I think, that, as I said, I, I, I think the recommendation... That has already been vetted uh, with and adopted by the executive committee um, is is firm at this point. Um, so you know, uh, to maybe expound on what Gary may have told you, I, I don't think it's we're, we're looking at a dramatic realignment. I think we're looking at a, a tweak to to the current alignment um, that uh, is probably the most logical tweak we could make.
1: Right. So can I guess?
2: <laughs> it's your show. I'm. You can guess.
1: I'm guessing Arizona moves from the Pacific to the Central, and Seattle just drops into the Pacific. And Bob's your uncle.
2: And what? What was the last point?
1: And <laughs> Bob's your uncle.
2: And Bob's my uncle. I, a, that must be a saying.
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a hearst Ontario saying, I think.
2: Okay,
1: very funny. I I didn't hear a response though to to my guess.
2: No, that's what I said. I, I said you can you can guess. I am not sure I can respond. Okay. Uh, what about uh, World Cup of Hockey, Bill? Uh,
1: there was some. I know you got asked about it by European media during your time in uh, overseas for the uh, for the games that started the season. Um, you know, my understanding uh, is that. You know, both the league and the PA want resolution, I guess, either way by the new year. Is there any developments there on on World Cup?
2: Um, No, not. I I can't say that there are are much in the way of new developments. Um, I I guess uh, I would say that we in the Players Association, um, you know, continue to be focused on it. um, Continue to have, you know, discussions at a high level about it, um, but I don't think, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure there's been any real kind of working sessions yet uh, toward that objective, um, so, you know, that's, that's I guess, where I'd, I'd leave it. Uh, I certainly hope, and I think both parties intend um, to have more in-depth discussions on that in the near future, but uh, I don't think there's anything scheduled as of today.
0: Bill, in the, I mean, the, the the time, it seems like it might be far away, but if you were going to hold to a four-year pattern, you would be looking at the fall of 2020, unless you dramatically changed and, and moved it into a mid-season type thing, which I, I don't think there's much appetite for um, from mm-hmm. the ownership level, at least if I understand it. But when you think about what you would like to see – uh, assuming that the world cup of hockey does maintain its pattern and we see it again uh did, for instance we Craig and Pierre and I uh, talked uh, was one podcast ago, uh, I believe, but talking about Team North America and the excitement that they brought to the proceedings in Toronto in the fall of 2016. Do you, on, on a personal level, do you do you have a sense of what you'd like the tournament to look like in terms of the number of teams in the field? Would you like to see a return of a Team North America? Um, you know, tweaking. You know, grandfathering maybe some players who already played in it, so they could play with their their nation, countries, or what? Should, what can you tell us or share what what would you feel personally would make for a good follow up uh, to the 2016
2: World Cup of Hockey? Well, I think those are all details that absolutely will be discussed. Um, you know, as as we go ahead with plans for the next World Cup, and they have to be discussed. Uh, I I can't tell you that I have a definitive view on that. Certainly, I agree um, with your, you know, suggestion and opinion that, you know, there were certain elements of our last World Cup in 2016 um, that made, you know, the Team North America and even to some extent Team Europe very exciting and compelling. Um, And, you know, in retrospect, I think it worked very, very well for the tournament um whether those circumstances and dynamics will exist uh, and continue to exist going forward and, and more specifically going forward in the next World Cup uh, I think is kind of yet to be seen. I, I think we said at the time in 2016 and I, I um, stay with the answer currently I, I think you know we, we do view this to be you know a, a nation team competition um, uh, and I think, Uh, in a perfect world, um, our next World Cup would go in that direction, uh, which would mean uh, that we wouldn't have uh, kind of a hybrid team either in Europe or North America. Um, But I also don't know the circumstances under which we're going to be planning uh, the next World Cup. And I think, you know, our talks with the Players Association over the next two months, two and a half months, uh, will go further to kind of refine our thinking in that regard.
1: Well, and and Bill, it's going to be hard not to think CBA, even though uh, you know you can have a World Cup decision independent of the CBA, of course. But you know, whenever you have these conversations with with the NHLPA, I'm sure it, so much of it overlaps, right, in terms of you know the vision that both sides have for international hockey and international calendar and all those things. Um, do Do you think there's any chance that coming out of a World Cup decision, especially if it's a positive one? that there could be more clarity on, on where things are headed with the CBA in terms of the reopener decision next fall and beyond.
2: I would definitely agree that the subjects are intertwined. Um, so, you know, as much as we want to be focused on, on our ability to plan the next World Cup, our ability to plan the next World Cup is necessarily related to, you know, what, what the situation is with the collective bargaining agreement and the expiration date um, and, you know, a negotiation of uh, an extension or a new collective bargaining agreement. So I, I think all those issues that you raise fairly uh, are, uh, to some extent, intertwined. Um, you know, and I again, I'm not a, I can't, uh, I don't have a crystal ball right now with respect to how that all plays out, but it's certainly part of the same discussion.
0: So, I don't know if this matters, but I know Pierre and I have taken a vote, and we're against uh, a work stoppage. So that, if you if you want to, <laughs> you want to add that to uh, that. We, you know
2: what? I'm not a big uh, I'm not a big fan of work stoppages either.
1: I, 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 I know you're probably going to yell at me, but I tweeted this uh, in September, Bill, and and I really do believe it. But I I find, this is, and this is a separate matter, but i find the, the 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 use of preseason the 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 importance of preseason to me has, has changed so much over the years because of how players show up to camp in much better shape than they used to so so i think the preseason's too long i know it's actually been shortened during your time than from what it was before but is there any appetite to and i know preseason games means revenue for both the players and the owners but is there any appetite whatsoever and i know i live in my naive world but to start the season earlier and end it earlier?
2: Uh, well, I mean, two different. I, I, I can either answer your question directly, which was a little bit different than the question you started with, with okay. the scenario season, or I can try to address both. You um, know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly concur with your your opinion with respect to preseason and, and how it's changed over the years and the relevance of the preseason and the and the utility of the preseason and, and what the preseason may look like going forward. And we've had, you know, we probably had more of those discussions in 2012 negotiation than we did in 2004, mm. um, although it was the 2004 negotiation where we shortened training camp. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I definitely think those will be issues that are on the table again when we next uh, bargain with the players. And, and I you know I don't um, you know I'm not sure we, we may have we ha- may have pretty good alignment uh, on what to do with the preseason and how long it should be and how many games it should be and how mm-hmm. it should be structured uh, into the overall business. So um, I agree with you. I, I, I think it, it's definitely a subject that needs to be explored and discussed. I don't know what the answers are uh, to it quite yet. Um, and, you know, whatever those answers are, we have to kind of reach jointly with the Players Association, so I'm not going to uh, presume right. what the answers are. Uh, but I agree. I think it, I, I think times have changed and continue to change. Um, and, you know, at least we have to be c- cognizant of that fact and, and, you know, and respond to it in, in some way. So um, that would be my answer to kind of your first musing with respect to kind of starting the season earlier and ending the season earlier, I would say that, um, know certainly that's a topic that's gotten a lot of conversation over my tenure in the national hockey league. Um, I think there's general agreement that if we could end, uh, the, the playoffs earlier, that would be a good thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: but I, I don't think at all there's alignment or agreement that, uh, the you know, the way to do that is to start the season earlier. I think there are a number of teams in our league who would be very much opposed to starting the season earlier because I don't uh, think they feel like it, it maximizes, you know, the, the early, you know, the S- September games and early October games don't maximize their ability to, to sell tickets. And, you know, and tickets are still an important part of our business. So if, if clubs aren't comfortable... Um, that games in September uh, are going to sell as well as games in, you know, the middle of October or the middle of November, then that's something we have to be cognizant of. So, you know, it's a complicated question.
0: All right. Bill, before I allow Pierre to harangue you on changing the start date for free agency, which is, of course, <laughs> long been known as the LeBron proposal, I am I am going to allow you to escape without having to deal with that. But uh, I wanted to oh, thank, uh, thank, yeah, I wanted to thank you uh, <laughs> on, behalf of, on, behalf of, <laughs> on behalf of, on behalf of, on behalf of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Thanks for dropping by and and spending some time with us. It's always fun to catch up. So. Really appreciate I'm always it.
2: Happy to talk to you guys. Appreciate uh, appreciate the sport and the sport of the game. It's all good.
0: All right, that was uh, that was great, and I I'll give you full credit, Pierre. That was uh, was your idea to have Bill on, and uh, it's always great to catch up. And I I think he did appreciate not having to go through your perpetual uh, desire to have free agency before the Canadian summer holiday on July 1st. So,
1: Well, it's, it's not just that. I mean, at least he answered the other part, which, I mean, I just don't think there should be any hockey played past May 31st. I think the Stanley Cup should be I'm awarded by May 31st. There should not be hockey in June, but the deputy commissioner knows that because I
0: complained about it for a long time. <laughs> All right. Before we close out, the one thing I want I want to raise this with you, uh, really, I came across it just before we started to take today. And I'm sure you're aware that the hockey song by Stomp and Tom Connors mm-hmm. uh, is going to be inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. I didn't even know there was a hall of fame i didn't know there was a ceremony but apparently at saturday's game between toronto and and the winnipeg jets uh, the hockey song which is a terrific piece of work piece of music by a canadian musical icon will be so inducted and before we close today i want to know what you, do you have a what's your favorite hockey song is there it, it is would it, be uh, it would be fireworks from the tragedy ah, again, yes be, uh, the
1: opening line about uh, the goal we all remember in '72, and uh, well, wh- now I'm wondering if I'm allowed to quote the line now. It is an athletic podcast. It is. I think you can uh, say it. Yeah, and, and of course the line goes, uh, "You said you didn't give a fuck about hockey," and I never say saw saw someone ever say that before. And uh, of yep. course, if if you're a fan of the tragical Hip, and certainly if you're Canadian, that's uh, one of the great lines ever. You were you were loosening my grip on Bobby
0: Orr. Great yes.
1: Song yeah no great song let me think. it's funny i went back and i was and it's singing, actually not really not really a hockey song after that it's more uh it's more a song about relationships and everything else but uh, great song
0: awesome yeah i'm with you on that that's good well i'm looking forward to uh, and i actually was in the air canada center one night when Stomp and when stomping Ton connors actually played the hockey song live Ah, uh, between periods on one of the concourses. Do you remember that? I think you were there with me. But uh, so I, I've actually seen him play that, uh, play that live. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad we got to touch on this before we, uh, we close out this edition of Human Advantage. So, good job. Anything fun, else?
1: Fun podcast, my friend. Trade me Zeke Elliott. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. All right, we'll, t- we'll talk about that next week. Thanks very much.